Hello, and welcome back to Break the Twitch, an interview-based podcast on intentional lifestyle design. I am your host, Anthony Ungaro. We sit down with amazing guests that share their expertise and personal experiences and how they do more of what matters, so you can too. In this episode, I sit down with Corey Huff, a fantasy fiction novelist, performing actor, and founder of The Abundant Artist. Corey talks about how he went from his agency day job to beginning the Blogspot website that would become The Abundant Artist, teaching creative people how to make money online. We discuss the survivorship bias of the entrepreneurial landscape, how we don't talk enough about the things that didn't work, and learn more from the failures. We also talk about the creative process, whether it's writing novels, making videos, or performing on stage. This is a great episode if you have a passion or a project that you'd like to turn into a side hustle or maybe even a full-time business. So definitely check this one out with Corey Huff. Finally, this podcast is member-supported. We don't want to distract you with ads or sponsors, so we rely on our community members to make it happen. Join the community to get immediate access to 12-month-long audio courses with topics ranging from decluttering to building a mindfulness practice and meditation. The community is chock full of tools and resources to implement sustainable changes to your life. So just go to breakthetwitch.com community to find out more about that and support the production of this podcast. If you do enjoy this episode, please do remember to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. But for now, let's start the show. Hey, Corey. Hey. How's it going? Good. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to be here. It is a thrill to have you because we're here in Portland right now, and we're actually at the same conference this weekend. It's so cool to be in a room full of people who are just like willing to be themselves and explore wherever their weird curiosities take them. Absolutely. So for context here, the, the Everything Conference is what we're talking about here, and it's a conference that is kind of, in a way, the opposite of what a lot of the time, I think society and through, like we talk about minimalism and like less but better, less but better. This is really about doing lots of things and having it be uh, okay and having lots of interests, but finding ways to combine them and and like thrive in that situation. I've always identified with that in a lot of ways because I've always had lots of passions. And so getting to meet other people, especially like yourself, who... Uh, also have lots of passions and manage to do really cool things with them is always a pleasure, of course. Yeah. And the the multi-potentialites, as Emily calls them, the organizer of the Everything Conference, <clears throat> uh, and it's a, it's a really common thing. Like people call them Renaissance souls or uh, what's what's the other one that I'm thinking of? Um, uh, scanners. Hummingbird. Yeah. Hummingbird. I've never heard that one before. I've never heard that, but uh, yeah. But the Renaissance soul thing comes about because of the Renaissance, right? It came because there were this there was this movement in art and science and this all of this knowledge and exploration that exploded. And suddenly all the learned people during the Renaissance were doing all of these crazy things. I just read a book about Leonardo da Vinci earlier oh, okay. this year and about his life. And he could do like a bajillion things. And he didn't even think of himself as a painter. Like he he was like, oh yeah, like that's the thing I do to make money. But he was he wanted to, he was an engineer. And wanted to like build um, war machines. That was the thing that drove him. Is he wanted to 
like be a war hero by building war machines early in his life. Um, and then later on, he got into the art thing. But like, like he <laughs> hilarious. He he, but he did. He made his living as an artist, and originally it was doing um, stage design, set design for uh, these big uh, parties that these nobles would throw. And so he was using his artistic and engineering skills together to build these really elaborate sets with like flying machines on the stage and stuff. Would he be your like if you could talk to one person dead or alive and hang out with them for a while? Or who who would it be? If not him, that is an impossible question. It's a tough one. Yeah, yeah I love reading biographies. Throw like, that on you. I'd love to have a conversation with Alexander Hamilton and be like, dude, like you were this genius polymath, and you couldn't get over the fact that somebody insulted you. Like, come on, man, you could have lived another fifty years. Okay, so we just hit on Da Vinci and Alexander <laughs> Alexander Hamilton. So I think that's a really good start. So in two thousand nine, you did something that was still fairly new. You were starting a like a personal blog and business online. Mm -hmm. Can you take me back a little bit to what was going through your mind during that time? What you were trying to solve, really? Like, sure. What was that about? Yeah. Uh, so I've always been a very creative person. I was in a touring Shakespeare troupe in high school. I promise I'm not going to go through my whole life biography, but it does tie through here. I've always been deeply connected to art and creativity. And uh, when I graduated from college, I had a, a BFA in theater, in acting. Uh, and I, we moved, my wife and I moved here to Portland uh, because that's where young people go to retire. And <laughs> I immediately got a job in internet marketing for a little agency uh, that did Google AdWords uh, management. Doesn't make any sense, but that's what ended up happening. And uh, so that was 2007 when I started working there. And after I'd been there for a while, I was trying to figure out, okay, what am I going to do? How am I going to make a living? Uh, I don't want to do Google AdWords management forever. Uh, Wait, no? <laughs> no. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I have all these creative things and I have all these friends who are very creative. So uh, I started a blog um, and it was Blogspot. So it was theabundantartist.blogspot.com. Sweet. I started this blog as a way of just sort of exploring uh, how creative people make money. Uh, how I was using my internet marketing skills to help some of my friends uh, sell their stuff, sell tickets to their stuff, get people out to the shows that I was in. Because um, on top of those things, I was also performing and doing Shakespeare and stuff. And that just started out as a way for me to explore ideas. And as I started teaching more and doing more consulting, somebody said, you should teach some classes. And I was like, cool, sure, why not? I talked to a couple of people who were selling classes online and I'm trying to think like 2009, like who the heck was wow, selling classes yeah. online? Yeah. But there were a handful of people, um, Dave D, uh, who, uh, he was in, he's in the Dan Kennedy group, like that hardcore direct response copywriting, uh, group. And I went to a Dave D event and learned about copywriting and selling classes online. I think it was teleseminars back in the day. And so my first online class was a teleseminar. I uh, got people out to, I, I had all these people on my mailing list, uh, like three, 400 people, something like that. And I did a teleseminar and I sold them into a class. And I, I basically threw like everything in the kitchen sink into that class, like everything I knew. Um, and it, I'm sure the class wasn't very good, but the first one was free um, because I was just learning what I was doing. And, uh, and just, it just kind of grew from there. That was 2009. 
uh, when I started the blog. I think I didn't do the first class until the next year, 2010 or something like that. Uh, and then here we are, 2019. It's been 10 years. First of all, I need to clarify. What is a teleseminar? Oh. Are we calling into this thing? <laughs> Am I too old? No, I mean, <laughs> I'm just for anyone listening. A teleseminar, I'm yes. Sure. It's, it's, it's exactly what it sounds like. You call in to a conference call and listen to somebody teach. Yeah, it's like yeah. it's like the webinar of today. Yeah, it, yeah. or podcast. Or the podcast. Yeah, it's like if you sure. listen listening to somebody teach a class in podcast form, but live over the phone. Okay, very cool. So so when you started this, it was, I love the blog spot. I also had a blog spot. Uh, it started out that way too. Love it. And I'm curious, like you said that this was a place for you to just uh, explore your whim basically mm-hmm. yeah and, it was it was at the beginning it was whatever the heck i wanted yet you called it the abundant artist that was just the name that popped into my head because i was like i am a recently graduated uh guy with a theater degree and i have no idea how to make a living from all these creative things i do so i'm just gonna sort of think about manifesting uh an abundant life and that was what popped into my head so was it the the teleseminar and doing that teaching that really focused in the abundant artist into what it became? I went to this Dave D thing and somebody was like, well, do you have a mailing list and have you ever done a teleseminar? And I was like, no. And what's that? <laughs> and so they were kind of, the person was kind enough to teach me and help me understand what to do. And then uh, actually helped me write the script for my first teleseminar. And uh, that's, that's when things took off. That's when I made my first money. You said something there that I think is really important that, that I want to hit on as well and share my own like, idea of this. I tried a bunch of stuff that hadn't worked out before that. Yeah. And I think that's something that everybody. Oh yeah, everybody glosses over it. Like, oh, I tried five things for. I tried five things that didn't work before the thing that did. And yeah. that's like that's a beautiful thing because I I personally have had like eight different blogs, maybe ten, right? A lot of domain names that never became what I thought they would. Um, different projects like that. And one of the biggest things is if when you're creating something, when you're putting yourself out there online, or you're trying to like find your place in the internet world it takes time and it, and it takes some trial and error to to figure out a way that that does it so uh thank you for saying that yeah because absolutely it's, it's super important and it's it's super important for people to hear that like yeah there are a lot of big businesses and brands and different things that people have made online but uh that wasn't probably the first thing they ever did yeah survivorship bias in the entrepreneurship world is really fascinating to me and I have now, every time I give a talk or give a training, I always talk about survivorship bias. You know, I say, this is, I'm sharing with you what works, what has worked for me and what I've seen work for my friends. And what I'm, what I, what generally doesn't happen in, in these conferences or when you take an online class or whatever is people don't talk about um, all the money they wasted. They don't talk about all the time they wasted. They don't talk about the th- ventures that they tried that failed. Uh, everybody focuses on who succeeded. And it's actually a massive problem in uh, the entrepreneurship community because we don't learn enough from failures. I used to subscribe to Entrepreneur Magazine. And I think a friend of mine called it like entrepreneurship porn. Totally. These three founders raised a million dollars by the time they were 23. From mom and dad. And they're crushing it. And it's just like, (laughs) 
oh, great. Well, like, yeah. is this what I'm, you know, is this what this is supposed to be? Yeah. Uh, and it just doesn't reflect the actual nature of this stuff. Yeah, the mainstream, the mainstream pop culture uh, version of entrepreneurship uh, is really only talking about the very narrow venture capital backed uh, investment driven businesses. Uh, and, and even when you get into the online marketing world that a lot of us run in, like me and a lot of my friends run in, um, even the play, the people that talk about that world, it's still focused mostly on men, mostly on white men. Uh, and it's mostly like dudes teaching other dudes how to make money. And it's not, uh, there's like so many different businesses out there that, don't get talked about and there's just there's a million opportunities okay so thank you for humoring that uh intervention there that that bit um so it's like you're starting to make money from this thing and what exactly are you doing you're i mean the whole concept of the abundant artist i think is fascinating mm -hmm. yeah so i had you know i had a day job at that point i'd been at the day job for two and a half years ish uh, and I had learned, I, I was pretty fluent with Google AdWords and I'd been building, uh, Facebook's ad campaign, ad platform had come out by then. And I was in my day job, I had built our agency's first Facebook ad service. So I was literally one of the first people in the world to use the Facebook ad platform. Um, not that I really knew what I was doing, but uh, it was there and I, and we tried and we did it and we built a, a service around it for the agency. And so I was taking what I was learning in my day job and I was applying it to helping my friends sell their art. And then I was teaching classes about that. So I initially it was just me with a microphone and uh, and I think I might have had like keynote, a keynote with a, a screen recorder, like ScreenFlow or whatever. And I might have done some PowerPoints while I was talking type stuff. Uh, and that was, that was the earliest version of it. And I sold that for, I had little PayPal buttons. I had like, I didn't have a, a like a cart checkout. I just had like a PayPal button on no, my like blog. The custom button yeah. that you made yeah. just for a check. Yeah. yeah. A little fade. Yeah. Like I'd gone into PayPal and made the, the checkout button. Um, and that was the only way that you could pay me. Oh man. That's yeah. so great. This is the formation of like the business that you've been running for a decade. Yeah. Basically. So, yeah. so how did that lead to like the book? So, so you have a book called mm -hmm. how to sell art online, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Initially, when I was first teaching this cl these classes, I didn't call it how to sell your art online. I called the early class was like, I was trying to be way too cute. I think it was like your first creative dollar or something stupid like that. And <laughs> it's not bad. Uh, and, uh, but what, but what, what I found out was, a lot of the the I initially I thought I would teach like artists of all kinds, um, and, and in the first class that we had we had like a dancer and an actor and a painter and just like like a big diverse group of people, and eventually what I sort of figured out was um, the classes that I was teaching worked best for people who had a product to sell. Right, if you're a dancer or an actor, your own what you're selling is your presence, your time. Right. And that doesn't work over the internet, not really. Uh, so the people who were attracted to my classes were visual artists, painters and sculptors. So that's who I started selling the class to. 
Uh, and then I started getting deep, deeply immersed in that world. I started going to gallery openings, started hanging out with more uh, illustrators and artists that I knew, and just getting to know that world really well. And in 2014, I was at a conference and my friend Gina was a bunch of us standing around talking. And I, I was like, I think I want to write a book, but I don't know how to pitch that book to a, a publisher. Right. And my friend Jeannie goes, oh, well, meet Nathan Berry, <laughs> who was standing right there. And uh, Nathan, uh, Nathan and I start talking and he whips out his phone and he emails uh, his agent and he's like, hey, you got to talk to Corey. And I was like, what is happening right now? And uh, that was my introduction to my literary agent. Uh, yeah. Um, Dave Fugate. And uh, it turns out that Dave's wife is a painter. So he was super into the concept of what I was doing. Uh, he's like, go write a book proposal. And I was like, what's that? <laughs> so I learned, uh, I learned how to write a book proposal, which took about three months. And uh, then I finished the book proposal and gave it to Dave and Dave went and pitched it to publishers. Uh, and so by the end of 2014, I had signed a contract. Uh, we had four different publishers bid on the book. Uh, so I got to pick the one that I wanted, uh, which ended up being HarperCollins. And I wrote the book in 2015. Um, took me probably I, I did I did a first draft of the book in a month. I rented a, a an apartment on the beach in Ireland. Um, we were living in Europe at the time, so I didn't just like fly to Ireland from the US. Uh, we were living in France at the time and uh, we got an apartment in Ireland and uh, basically I just wrote every morning for four hours uh, for a month. Okay. All right. Pause. Okay. <laughs> you just said I just wrote every day for four hours for yeah. a month. Is that really as easy as it, like, was that process? I mean, it wasn't easy. As straightforward like, as that for but you? It really was that straightforward. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, so it sounds so straightforward, but it, by 2015, I'd already been doing it for six years, right? I'd been teaching that, that topic for six years. So really what I was doing is just writing down everything I, I knew and then organizing it and putting it in the right order and then trimming it down to the right size. Uh, so that's what I mean. That's what I was doing when I was writing for four hours a day. I wasn't just like, I wasn't really learning anything new. I was just writing it all down. How were you specifically like structuring your life in a way for you to be able to focus on the book at that right. time? Yeah. Like, were cell phone notifications and like social media an issue? Well, the nice thing or? was because we were living on the coast of Ireland, like cell phone reception sucked. Uh, so I couldn't get like text messages. Like I didn't really get text messages and, um, or any of that kind of stuff. And our Wi-Fi really sucked at that apartment. So we couldn't really do a lot. Uh, so I would just get up, uh, at like six o'clock in the morning. I'm an early riser. Uh, I'm a, um, one of those people that doesn't require a lot of sleep. I've been that way my whole life. I sleep about six hours a night, pretty much like clockwork unless I'm sick or something. Uh, so if I go to bed at midnight, I'm up at six. If I go to bed at 10, I'm up at four or five. Uh, it's just the way my brain works. So I would get up at six most mornings and I'd go for a walk on the beach, uh, come back, eat breakfast and be in my chair writing by seven thirty, eight o'clock. And I would write until noon. Uh, that was my, that was the, the rule that my wife and I had set. It's like, just leave Corey alone until noon. And, uh, and I just had to write and I try, I would turn my Wi-Fi off, uh, and turn my phone off and just write. And it's sometimes it was torture. 
right? Like sometimes it would, you could get like 500 words done in four hours, right. which is awful. Um, yeah. And sometimes it was it would flow and I'd get four or 5,000 words done. And But over the course of several weeks, and it was three weeks, it wasn't a full month, it was three weeks, um, I had a first draft. Um, a lot of writers will say a crappy first draft, right? Yep, yep. that's one uh, way to put it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and And so you just write just whatever garbage comes out uh, and then you leave it alone for a few days or a couple of weeks and you go back and revise. Um, I don't know if I knew that much about it. That was my first book. I've written a few since. And you have to take like your first draft, let it sit for a little bit and then go back and figure out what's wrong with it. Yeah. It, it's, uh, it's funny going through and writing my own ebook. I was doing something kind of like that, but it was weird because I was working with a de developmental editor mm -hmm. and so I would write a chapter, mm -hmm. turn that in, and then she would uh, give notes on that, send it back to me while I was writing the second chapter. Mm -hmm. And it was all in the same document. And after about two weeks of that, I could not do it. That sounds like a nightmare. It was terrible <laughs> because I would go get lost in all of the corrections as I was trying to write the next chapter mm -hmm. and just get totally stuck and so eventually i had to just kind of like plow through everything like you're saying and then go back and it's funny the same thing happens to me for like youtube videos client projects films videos works with like color grading too you like set a color set a you know set the tones and everything and then step away come back to it and you're like oh oh my <laughs> what have i done <laughs> That's like way too short or uh -huh. that bit is too fast of a cut or that those colors are just not working for this thing. I mean, at the time it looked like in your brain, it, you know, it, it was working and same thing for writing, right? Mm -hmm. it, it's yeah. such a, a funny process. I think it's the same process for every creative thing. Like, uh, like I said, I've been performing on stage since I was a teenager and the, when you do a play, when you perform a play, you block out the whole show so you go beginning to end this is the way it usually works you block out the whole show uh it usually takes a couple weeks to do that uh and then you go and you do uh what's called a stumble through where you try to try to perform the show for the director and it, it everything goes wrong you realize oh like this scene doesn't connect to this scene correctly and i'm supposed to be standing over here but we actually ended over here and and you just like all the pieces and you see where all the pieces need to be fixed and reworked. And I, it's the same process for every creative thing that I have done. So many people that want to do something like writing a book, start making videos, anything like starting out on YouTube, that kind of stuff, like see what's being made and think like, that is what I'm making now from the start. And like, I'm going to just put it all into a timeline editor and it's just going to come together and it's going to look like that. Yep. And uh, that's just not the case. And and it's such like, I remember for me, you know, starting out and I'm still on such the learning curve of, of filmmaking and, and all this stuff for the kind of content I make. But, you know, it's it's like so easy to look at YouTubers and see just like, oh, they're just making a video. They're just pointing a camera at stuff and cutting it together and it feels easy. But oh my gosh, like everyone needs to hear this. Just like start make a terrible thing and then improve it a little bit <laughs> hopefully you know and then just like try it you'll learn stuff and then try it again the next time ship it go to the next take what you learned apply it 
ship it, take what you learned, apply it. Instead of having this like, I'm going to write this book. And we, I used to think literally that like, oh yeah, they just sat down and wrote this book. Like I remember specifically having that <laughs> thought that this book is what you wrote sitting down on the coast of Ireland, pounded it out and you're like, wow. I have so many thoughts about <laughs> about this. Like, so after I, after the book came out and we got, and we came back to the States, um, a guy reached out to me and asked if he could take me to lunch. Uh, so we went to lunch and he's this fancy hotshot lawyer, uh, his dad, but his dad's a painter. So he bought the book to help his dad, to help understand how to help his dad sell, uh, his art. Cool. And so we sit down and we're talking about the book and I'm having a good time. And, uh, and he's like, so I wanted to talk to you about something. And he opens the book and he's got like color coded tabs in the book. And he's like, here on page, blah, blah, there's a typo, blah, blah, blah. And he had highlighted every typo no. or spelling mistake in the book. And no. he's like, yeah, and he's like a lawyer. So he's used to like doing contract reviews, right? And Red um, pen mentality. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And the thing that blows my mind is like, when you write a book, you write the book, you rewrite it five or six times during the process, right? Um, your development editor sees it. Your copy editor sees it. Uh, your proofreader who's supposed to catch it, sees it. Mm -hmm. Your early beta readers see it. So like probably close to 20 people saw the book before it was released. Yeah. There's going to be typos. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Yeah. And people think that this thing just sprang forth from my mind, uh, fully formed as it is. And like, I make a lot of mistakes, so I can totally see why people would think, oh, like Corey didn't like catch all the details here, but it's like, a lot of people saw this thing before it went out and every creative thing, every painting, every video, everything has flaws and it's easy to see the flaws and pick something apart. To the flip side of that though, that should, especially as we look back to our old work, mm -hmm. right? We should look at it and be like, wow. That that was I. I'm better now than I was. Yes, then. Yes, yes. Yeah. Hopefully, that's the goal. I mean, that's yeah. the goal, right? Yeah. You know, I always wonder if like Tarantino does this because we think of the greats, right? And he has to, but like we think of the greats. The 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 didn't he say like I'm going to direct nine films or like I'm going to direct ten films in my life and then I'm done. Interesting. And and I'm pretty sure that was him. And to me, that's just he's just like, I don't know. I how do you approach that i but he's like masterful you know in in the, this way and so i wonder does he look back and i'm sure he does he's human yeah but like, you have to i okay so i'm really into mariah carey beautiful okay so the other day i read that she's worth 500 million dollars yeah which is like what that's actually it, all from her christmas album 100 <laughs> of it is from her christmas she's album like top five biggest selling musician of all time for sure yeah and so I was just sort of reading about her and I've, I've listened to all of her albums several times. And in the Daydream album, uh, it's like her fourth or fifth album. Yeah. So by then she's already had like six or seven number one hits. Uh, one Sweet Day that was on the number one, was number one for 16 weeks. That was with uh, it, Boys to Men, right? Yeah, one Sweet yeah, Day. Yeah. yeah. Classic. Uh, yeah. Um, so there's this song, uh, called looking in on her fifth album. She's already a world famous star. And the song is just about how she feels like somebody who is standing at a window 
looking in to where where the good stuff's happening, right? And and in the song, she's got a lyric about how nobody will ever see the real her, and she'll never feel like she matches up, matches where she wants to be. And I was like, oh my gosh! Like she's by that point, she's six seven years into being a world famous star, yes, and she still has imposter complex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If Mariah Carey can feel imposter syndrome, uh, then I think it's okay for We're us. We're all screwed. Too. There's yeah. no, there, there's no hope. <laughs> yeah, man, I, I will say this uh, is now a Mariah, Fer- Mar- Mariah Carey fan, fan podcast. Fan, fan podcast, <laughs> and we're not going to uh, analyze her career album by album. I'm sorry, guys. That's just the way it is. We're gonna have to leave it at that. So great art is evolved, n- not made. Perhaps mm-hmm. uh, maybe that's where we can conclude uh, that little bit there. Sure. You wrote this nonfiction book that was about helping people. And then you moved on to fiction. Well, after I conquered the business world, right. I <laughs> decided that I needed to move to the next mountain. No, I was just, uh, I just want have a, I, I'm a multi-potentialite. I have lots of interests and um, I've always wanted to write a fantasy novel. When I was a kid, uh, I moved around a lot. I didn't have very many friends. So the only thing I did from like, third grade to sixth grade like the only thing i did was read fantasy novels um i would go to the library and i would get like a giant bag of books and i would bring them home and i would just sit in my room and read and my parents thought i was doing drugs because i didn't have any friends and i just sit in my room and read from a very young age i had this idea for a, a fantasy world where people discover that magic and fairies really exist because i want that to be true i, I really want this fantasy world to be real and so this is the world that I had made up. And I, when I was in junior high, I started playing Dungeons, Dungeons and Dragons. So I was like, well, I'm going to take this fantasy world that's in my head and I'm going to turn it into my D&D world. And then uh, that still happens. Like I still play D&D and that world has grown into this thing, that I, this creative thing that I've been playing with for 20 years. And uh, so the fantasy novels came out of that, out of this fantasy world that I've been playing with for 20 years. And I created a story where people discover that magic and fairies are real and the fairies try to kill them because they don't want anybody to know that they are real. Oh, yeah. yeah. So then they go and figure out how to use the magic to defend themselves. And uh, that's book two. And book three is in progress right now. What was that? Was that writing process different for you? Did you feel closer to it? It was much harder. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, definitely, Definitely more personal right? Like it's a, something that was pretty much self-generated, right? Um, the, the nonfiction stuff, the how to sell your art online thing was just business stuff. It felt, it feels relatively impersonal. Um, but the fantasy stuff was definitely, I cared about it more. Yeah. Um, and it was, it's harder because it was a newer discipline as well. Uh, so I think I look back at, the amount of progress I made as a writer between book one and book two, uh, and definitely look back at book one and think, oh, like I could do better. <laughs> well, as we know, it should it should be that way, you know, as you evolve and and that kind of stuff. Yeah, one one of the previous guests who I know, you know, Charlie Gilkey, mm-hmm. uh, made the you know the brilliant statement of like the closer we are to something, the the more important it is to us, the more we're going to fight it, mm-hmm. and the harder it's going to be for us. So that's important to remember. Like we don't, we don't make a big deal about taking the garbage out. 
We're not like, ah, oh, we don't have all this not, creative not resistance. In taking the garbage out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so, and so, um, as things get perpetually closer to us and our like the thing that matters really to us, the, the harder we're going to fight against it. Yeah. Which is funny. And, uh, seems backwards, but it's, I mean, it's totally true. Charlie's a very wise man. Charlie is a wise man. He's, he says some smart things. Yep. <laughs> He's got some smart things going on. Fiction has always been something that I've struggled with. I think in my younger days, I would play with a lot of that stuff. And I would like make maps and, and all kinds of things. And, and I found that especially in the last couple of years, as I've been writing and creating, I always gravitate back towards nonfiction, break mm -hmm. the twitch. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm, I'm wondering just like, how do you go about like, is there a process for like mapping out these ideas? Do you sit and just imagine and think like, where does a lot of that stuff come from? I know you said D and D, and so a lot of years of that and storytelling experience. But was there a particular process you followed to capture these ideas? Yeah, there's all the background of twenty years of reading fantasy novels and playing Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, I've always been the dungeon master, so I've always been the one creating the stories, creating all of the uh, characters in the world for the players to play with. Um, so I had all of that background and and a lot of those characters made it into the book as background characters right for the for the main characters to act off of um and then as far as the story structure goes um yeah like there are there are books out there that you can read about fiction story structure story genius that's the name of the book okay. uh, story genius is um one of the books that I found most helpful, uh, and really it just like with the, my acting background, you have to find the reason that your character is making the choice that they're making. And the book has to resolve in such a way that, um, the character learns and grows and becomes something, right? The point of reading fiction is so that we can go on a journey with the character where they learn and grow and change and come out in a new state. And if a piece of fiction doesn't have that, it, we won't find it compelling. The reason we care about fiction is because it arouses empathy within us and makes us identify with the character in the story and helps us learn stuff because the character learns stuff, right? And for me, um, I'm really exploring themes of trauma uh, one of the characters in my book is, um, she has experienced very dramatic trauma when she was young. And so she's working her way through that trauma and figuring out how to become a, a good person, even despite that trauma. Themes of loneliness. I grew up an only child. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't have siblings. We moved, I moved 13 times by the time I was 13 years old. So, wow. uh, one of the characters in my book is, definitely a projection of that part of my life experience right because I, that's what we do we put ourselves into our art and he goes through he has to learn how to let people in and actually ask for help and allow people to help him um or else he'll die and uh it's that's a very difficult and traumatizing thing to go through you know when you're forced to learn how to ask for help it's really hard yes yeah. That's something we've been learning this weekend too, about asking, asking yeah. for help when we need it and, and that kind of stuff. Yeah. What was that 
that like? like going through it and like do you remember in terms of what that was feeling like moving and changing up I mean that seems like it'd be difficult yeah my uh parents my mom and my stepdad um I never knew my biological father and my mom married my stepdad when I was eight and there were drug and alcohol problems when I was growing up uh and my parents had a hard time just holding down permanent good jobs so we ended up moving around a lot uh, for family, just to be with family or to f- go to a new job or whatever. And it was, it was difficult. Uh, it was lonely because, you know, just when you get to know some people, you end up moving. Um, in sixth grade, I moved three times, right? So just when I'd make a couple of friends, we'd end up leaving. Looking back on it, I can see sort of the threads of how it affected me, right? And I was, I was a very lonely and angry teenager and uh, hopefully people tell me I'm not like this anymore, but I used to like have this raging temper and I really had to learn how to get that under control because I was really just, and I had an explosive temper as a teenager and uh, it probably took me into my early twenties to not be that guy that would just like scream at people for no good reason. Hearing this is, uh, I'll say surprising to me. So in 2012, I wrote a, a, about my experience of moving around a lot and having this angry teen, uh, teenage experience and um, how becoming a missionary for my church uh, allowed me, gave me an opportunity to get outside of the life that I grew up in and change my perspective on the world. I I worked with the immigrant community in Vancouver, BC. I learned how to speak Mandarin and I spent two years working with people who came from a life that I couldn't have possibly imagined as a kid that grew up in a trailer park in rural Utah. Like, uh, it was such a life-changing experience to be a missionary and it completely changed the trajectory of my life. You mentioned the missionary work that became very substantial to you at that time. Um, how did that come to be a part of your life? I come from a long, uh, history of Mormon pioneers my, the Huff family joined the church in 1836 in Canada and came across the plains with the pioneers in the 1840s. Uh, so my roots in Mormonism go way, way back. But nobody in my family actually goes to church. My mom, my sib, my, my uh, aunts and uncles and all that, none of them go to church. Uh, a couple of generations ago, my family all stopped going. So I was baptized when I was eight because my mom was like, you should get baptized because that's what everybody in our, in our family does, even though none of us go to church. And so I was baptized pretty young. So I was exposed to the church a little bit, but I didn't really go to church until I was 16, almost 17. And um, we were living in Utah and I had made friends with a bunch of really like, like a, basically a church youth group. I'd made friends with a bunch of kids that were like super, super Mormons. And they were like um, going to early morning seminary, like religion class before school, and um, and I really had a crush on one of the girls. So oh, that'll uh, do it. yeah, that'll, that'll <laughs> definitely do it. And so I just started going to some church activities, and uh, my friends invited me to seminary, uh, which is uh, release time seminary in Utah because there's so many Mormons in Utah. Uh, you can actually uh, leave one of your class slots open, go off campus, and go to a church and. Uh, take a class. Oh, wow. Yeah. So all the schools in Utah structure their class that way so that you can either take eight classes or you can take seven and go off campus and have a release period. 
Got it. Uh, yeah. So I decided to take seminary because I was curious about what it was. And I figured if I didn't like it, I could just have a free period. Um, but the, as soon as I started going to seminary, um, it was a profoundly different life experience than anything I had known up to that point. My, you know, they talk in seminary to talk about, uh, you know, families can be together forever in heaven. And that was such a revolutionary concept to me, um, that anybody would want to be with their family in heaven. I couldn't even imagine wow. wanting to be. And, and so as I got to know these kids more, um, and like visited their homes and stuff, they're like kids where their families love each other and genuinely enjoy spending time together. And some of them have like eight siblings. And it was just, it opened up this world to me of, of a completely different life. And so I started studying the scriptures and I started learning how to pray and it just brought a lot of peace and joy into my life. And so I decided to start going to church and that was, it just felt like home from the day, the first day that I went into the church, it was just where I needed to be. And I really felt like God was speaking to me. And so shortly after I started going to church, uh, a friend of mine asked me if I was going to go on a mission and cause all Mormon boys, uh, at the time it was Mormon boys, 19, uh, when they reach 19, they go on a mission. And so I went on a mission to Vancouver, BC, and I, I spent 12 weeks in the missionary training center in Provo, uh, studying Mandarin for eight to 10 hours a day and, uh, and then learning how to be a missionary. And I lived in Vancouver for two years and did service work, did some proselytizing, taught English classes, um, met a lot of Chinese immigrants, people, everything from like international businessmen who uh, would travel back and forth between Beijing and Vancouver and had a lot of money and connections. And, and then even to just like, there was a couple that we met who uh, left China on a, a, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a cargo ship, a container ship. Uh, they, they just paid a, a boat captain to allow them to cross the ocean on a wow. container ship. Um, I met a guy who had been in jail for preaching in China. Uh, he had spent uh, like two, three years in jail for preaching uh, without a license. Preaching without a license. If you're a preacher in China, you have to have what you preach uh, approved by the government. So just all these people that I met who, you know, they they came to Canada to have a better life for their families or for themselves. I just always think about the contrast between the way I grew up and the way that they lived. And, you know, we both had hard stuff going on, but it was just, it just seemed like so much harder to be to be the person who was so desperate to get out of where they lived that they stowed away on a cargo ship for 30 days to cross the ocean. Wow. So it just, it, it really opened my eyes in a lot of ways. And it, and it set me up for, um, a very different trajectory in life, right? Like I was the first person in my family to go to college. Uh, I learned how to study because I had to learn Mandarin. Like I graduated from high school. I, I, I barely tried in high school. I graduated with a good GPA, but I didn't really study very hard. I didn't know how to study. So learning Mandarin forced me to learn how to study because I couldn't talk to anybody if I didn't speak Mandarin. So I had to like study hard and I had to learn how to study. It sounds like the, the element of service was a really big part of your growth as as a man and as a as a person at that time in your life. I mean, because that's effectively what you're doing. Service has been something that makes me a better person. And I find that the more service I give, the better a person I am. 
uh, it's very easy to get caught up in how much money am I making? Am I working enough? Uh, you know, am I gratifying my own desires? But when I'm doing things that don't have a profit motive, uh, there's still like some self-fulfillment to it. Like profit is yeah, it's, a it's, funny word. Yeah. Cause like cause monetary I still, profit I still like I, when I do service projects, like I get to hang out with people I like, uh, quite often I get to meet new interesting people. I've had business opportunities come up because of service. Uh, but it's more about the sense of fulfillment that I get and realizing like I did this thing and it helped these people and and that's just good. Like that in and of itself is is a good feeling. One of the things that has come up often in my life is uh, the idea of serving or giving without expectation being one of the most rewarding and returning of opportunity things I've ever done in my life. It seems like uh, whenever I've gone like, oh yeah, like, oh, let's do that. That sounds awesome. Sure, I'll shoot a video for that. Or sure, like, let's go do photos and like help you launch this thing that that is going to be helping people in this area. Some crazy thing always comes out of it. And it's like, I think so often, especially with this kind of stuff, it's very easy to in this, I don't know, I guess I'm talking about American culture, our, our world modern culture. It's very easy to think like on a one for one scale when we do things. I went to Pam Slim's session at the Everything Conference. Yeah. And the way that she talks about building a business, uh, she and she really directly calls out like in in a lot of times in business we use uh, terminology that is uh, like it, it's uh, colonization or kingdom building or empire building where we're going to crush the competition and we're going to win and we're going to you know beat people and we're going to you know, and, and I'm going to be great and I'm going to succeed. Right. right. Stand at the top of the mountain with that yeah. flag, me. Yeah. But <laughs> the way that Pam thinks about it, and I'm getting more and more excited about this way of thinking is when you build a network and you make sure that the people in your network are successful, uh, it brings everybody along and nobody gets crushed. The rising right? tide. When you concentrate on making sure that your network succeeds it comes back to you in many many ways and and you can't foresee it and that's the the network effect is very powerful yeah i mean i think of the as you said the the uh the rising tide lifts all boats mm -hmm. right when we can kind of bring ourselves up as a community everyone is winning and uh except for the people that might be trying to keep that community down but we don't want those people to win especially when you're in a place where you have some needs that are maybe not being met it's easier to like think about it in that way mm -hmm. and the 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 difficult to maybe and this is a huge part of privilege probably of being in a position to offer without expectation of return mm -hmm. is that it's the ROI is like way bigger yeah and and so i don't even know where i'm going with that but i mean it's just an idea right i, I well, think it's it's, something. it's it, it yeah, that, that's the essence of privilege is I can do this thing that other people can't do, right? In whatever way that that is. Diving back into your area of expertise, uh, if I may, the intersection of art and business, I'm sure there are people listening that 
would be very interested in making some aspect of their creativity or their art a bigger part of their life. And maybe one way of doing that would be to find a way to monetize it. So if someone is kind of starting totally from scratch, I love making pottery or I love painting and I'm you know, getting pretty good at it and I want to share this with the world, but have it support itself. Like what would be some starting points, some, some ideas and starting steps for just getting that process going? Sure. So there's a few assumptions that I have to make. Uh, so assuming that that person has a day job, maybe they have a, a full-time job doing whatever, uh, but that job does not require extra time and energy outside of the day job, right? So you're not like a CEO of some Fortune 500 company where it's a all or nothing job. Maybe you have a job that you find interesting or just interesting enough um, and you work 40 hours a week, but then you leave it alone. So what we the process we usually go through with artists that are in this situation is when we get when they first get started, uh, there isn't you need to work in a series. So uh, the problem that a lot of artists have is the same problem that a lot of multi-potentialites have, where you might be a proficient enough artist that you can work in a lot of different mediums, a lot of different styles, talk about a lot of different subjects. Um, when you're talking about commercial viability as an artist, you need at least 10, 15 pieces of art that are in the same style and series of work, right? So you need to be able to show people you have a concept and idea that you're carrying through. Uh, so assuming that that's the case, uh, then the next thing you need to do is you need to start telling people about the work. It's not a lot more complicated than that. Uh, you, what, what I will often recommend artists start doing is uh, what Tara Gentili calls a, the living room strategy. You basically invite 10 friends over and you say, hey, I'm going to, I want to practice talking about my work. I'm going to give a five minute talk. I'm going to share some food and drinks. Everybody comes over. You wait till everybody's there. Everybody's got a drink in their hands. Everybody's got some food. Everybody's happy and have, having a good time. You've got three or four pieces of art out on display, whether on the wall or on an easel or something. And you give a five-minute talk about the work. You say that it's for sale. And then you continue with the party. Uh, the people who are interested will come and ask you about the sale. You don't have to hard sell them because they're your friends and family. And you do that a couple times to practice it. And then you ask your biggest supporters to host a similar event in their home and have them invite 10 of their friends and family. It's like a Tupperware party, but for art. I was just going to say, yeah. like, <laughs> I think this is a model. This is a model. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and this, it, it works in many different industries. Um, that is probably the cheapest, easiest way for an artist to get started selling their work. Uh, a lot of artists will come and say, well, I, I can't get into a gallery. Well, there's only 6,000 galleries in North America and there's uh, like 1.2 million artists. So your odds of getting into a good gallery that is a good fit for your work, not that great. Uh, and even when you do get into a gallery, it's not a guarantee that you're going to sell. There's all sorts of complexity to it. So as far as what you can control, um, that model is the one that we usually start people with. Uh, and then we have classes on like learning how to tell your story, learning how to identify who your target collector is. Um, collector for artists is just their target buyer right? Their, their ideal customer. And then uh, there's some habits that you need to build into your life. Uh, so outside of your work week, outside of your 40 hour a week job, you need to be working on your art. You need to be making art and you need to be working on uh, selling your art. And 
uh, we have the 50-50 rule, which is 50% of your art business time should be making art and 50% should be uh, selling your art, right? Uh, so if you're out, outside your 40-hour-a-week job, if you're working 20 hours a week on your art business, 10 hours of that is making art, 10 hours is promoting yourself. We had Jesse Reno on the podcast, who's a pretty well-known artist, and he used to be a mailman, and uh, he would, uh, after, at the end of the day, uh, at the end of delivering mail and packages every day, he uh, set a goal for himself to talk to 10 people each week about showing his art somewhere, whether it was an abandoned factory or a gallery or whatever, um, but he wouldn't let himself paint until he had spoken to 10 people each week. Wow. Yeah. So sometimes he would get that done by Tuesday or Wednesday, and sometimes he wouldn't get it done at all. But uh, that was his incentive because every artist loves to loves to make art. Uh, that's the reward, right? Uh, but you got to get the other work done too. You got to, and and a lot of times artists will tell me, "Oh, I've been painting for twenty years, and I've only sold a handful of pieces." And then when you dig into it, you find out that they don't do they don't actively try to sell their work at all. So you do have to actually build into your life the act of selling, the act of marketing your work. Um, and it needs to be about 50%. If you, if you talk to all the artists that have had, we've had come through our programs, all the artists that we've had on the podcasts as success stories and stuff, they all spend about 50% of their time, sometimes more, sometimes less, uh, marketing themselves. And that tends to be true even for the really successful artists who are in big galleries because they're still going to openings, they're still prepping the work for sale, they're still giving talks. Uh, everybody thinks that you can make art and sell it and just be making art all the time and not have to worry about any of the other stuff. But a professional knows that they have to put in the time. I, I mean, I'm listening to this and I, I can't help but just think about being self-employed or business as a whole. It, it is funny that the deeper you go into a lot of the stuff, um, the less time you're actually spending doing the thing that you started the, the business to do so that you could be free to make a living from your art or your, your thing. And, and so it's reflect, it seems just so reflective of that, that, that we have to just integrate. The reality is that if you want to do something for a living that you love, you're going to spend a huge chunk of time not doing that thing yeah. until maybe you can scale to a certain point where you then have a system and people working for you. So you can be your, like obscure creator self, just just making your thing, and you have systems and other things and uh, infrastructure in place and demand for your work. That I think probably then it's like maybe what would you say like ninety ten where you're like having to still show up and do talks. Yeah, there's always going to be ten to twenty percent of your time that is not the thing you love doing. Yeah. Right. Um, and I've gone through the process the last couple of years as we've had more and more artists growing their businesses bigger. Um, we're now, we've now gone to, through the process of helping several artists hire studio assistants and hire studio managers, uh, you know, uh, assistant artists to help them with the work or people to manage the business, the business and shipping, right? Done a lot of that. And that is when artists start to free up their time to be able to do more creative work. Uh, but I think you have to plan, you have to be willing to put up with the stuff you don't want to do for five years or more um, because that's how long it takes to grow a business and get it to the point where it's healthy enough that you, the artist, don't have to be the CEO as well. And for a lot of people, you know, hearing that five years, mm -hmm. um, that might feel like a really long time. 
And five years can feel like a really long time. But I will also say that this is building a thing that you're going to be able to make a living by your own accord eventually, right? If you do this right and put in the right 50-50 rule and you're, you know, you're, you're pivoting and making sure 100% of these things don't work out. But, you know, that time investment is like, what, what other things do we spend five years doing, right? Yeah. We spend four years more often than, than not in college, mm-hmm. uh, getting generalized education and training. and some t- Or sometimes, like you spend four years learning how to become an engineer and how to think like an engineer so that you can go off and think like an engineer for a lot of money. Yeah. And, and so when we think about the time scale of five years, I mean, it, it, it really, life is long when it is, right? Life is short, but it's also long. Yeah. And so even if you're later in life, spending five years developing something, let's say you're 65, 70, you've retired from a traditional career. I still want to encourage people, and I'm sure you would too, yeah. that like start the five years now. About 50% of the artists that come through our programs are career switchers, people that are coming from medical careers or legal careers or you know some other thing. Uh, transitioning into being an artist. Uh, and they all tell me, um, not all of them, but a lot of them tell me, I wish I'd started sooner. Or uh, they tell me, um, I wish I'd found this sooner, right? Like it's more fulfilling than whatever their other thing was. Yeah, you just, you got to put in time. And and I also, I also want to say like five years is a number that I put out to make it sound like it, this is how long it's going to take, but it doesn't always take that long. Right. Sometimes you get lucky and the right person buys your work and tells everybody and you're successful right away. But that's luck. And really, it's with any business, it's a matter of doing the work and preparing so that when the right opportunity happens, you're ready to go and you're ready to take advantage of whatever the opportunity is. Oh my gosh, yes. Because we've all, I know I've had times when somebody was like, if you can get here at this time, I can give you this opportunity and, you know, you're halfway across the country or you don't have the money to, to do the thing or whatever. Like it's, you you have to be ready and you have to know how to do the work when the opportunity comes up. Some of my greatest life lessons came from my guitar teacher at a community college in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, John E. Law, that guy. No, he was a guitar teacher and his name was Johnny John, Law. <laughs> John E. Like his middle initial was E. That's so awesome. So John yeah. E. Law. Yeah. I loved it. Super smart dude. And and he uh, made a really good living as a jazz guitarist. He had a ton of albums. He taught part-time at the the uh, college. And so he like he had all his like benefits figured out from there. And then he was gigging. He was making like, he said, over 200 grand a year just as a musician. One of the things he said, uh, I remember was a couple things. One was just focus on buying things that will return you money. So, uh, you know, whatever you're trying to do, obviously you need to cover your essentials, but when you make investments in fun things or different things, try to find things like if you're buying a guitar, how's that, are you going to be able to rent the guitar out? Are you going to be able to, you know, play gigs with it that you can't right now? Same thing goes for like cameras, right? Are you going to be able to get work that you can't get with what you have now? That's principle one. Number two was when the opportunity strikes, 
you better sing your heart out. So, and you better be able to, because a lot of people go around saying, oh, I want to be a musician. I want to I be a career musician, or I want to, you know, get famous. And then you go to them and go, okay, sing something. And then it's like, <laughs> and I, I would be, I mean, I don't, you know, I had some aspirations around doing music and, and things like that, but I never had the big, like, I want to be a star, but I was put in that position through that situation where he was talking about it. And I was just like, well, what, what should I sing? And the people that I know that from that time that have gone on to do well in theater and different things were like, you know, yeah, like they just yeah, busted they just, it out yeah. instantly. My wife is a, is an actor and she's a musician and she plays like eight instruments. And anyway, she's an incredible performer. And, um, we were in a, I directed a show that she was in. And one day after one of the performances, uh, some teenage girls came up to my wife and they were like, you're so amazing. How long did it take you to, uh, to be able to sing that song? And she said, well, we had about six weeks of rehearsal and 20 years. Yeah, totally. And, and I was like, oh yeah. And the, and the teenagers were just like, oh, <laughs> they were like, oh no. <laughs> I mean, these things take time and preparation, yeah. but I mean, I think the biggest thing just to, to go back to your point about making a living, doing a thing, right. Is that it's not about like you'll get you may get lucky, but you get lucky by having your work prepped by having your I think you said fifteen somewhat themed pieces ready to show yeah like five musical numbers that you can just blam as soon as you, oh you're sitting uh, at a hotel or you're on the plane next to a record exec and he goes well what do you got here's my mixtape yeah. like luck doesn't happen sometimes maybe it does <laughs> i can't speak to that but in general i would say that luck is right like the meeting of you doing the 50 50 showing up consistently and then you're presented with an opportunity and you show up but let's stick with five years we can say five years five years <laughs> i like five years at exactly five years you know you'll be uh, successful at five years that's what i'm no i'm not gonna promise <laughs> you know i'll take that promise because as a matter of fact break the twitch this November is going to be five years old. Wow. I know. And uh, the podcast is only a year old at this point. But uh, but yeah, so I will look forward to my fame and fortune at that time. The checks in the mail, buddy. Well, I think it's the time in the show where we would have you answer a question from the question bowl left by previous guests. You can dump it out if you want. Grab any of those. What's a book that has made a lasting impression on you? YouTube viewer musics my love 92. We did take some early questions from people on YouTube and that's one that you just got. Look at that. Okay, the first one that popped into my head was Ender's Game. Mm. Ender's Game. Have you read Ender's Game? I haven't. Uh so do you know what it is? So science fiction book about a it's uh, in the future uh Earth is at war with some aliens. Of course. And uh, in a desperate attempt to win this uh, war that's been at a stalemate for years, um, they recruit children into this fighting force um, to, to drive the or fly these um, space uh, ships. And so Ender is uh, one of these kids. And he's like super uh, smart, like genius level kid. The whole book is about him and these other kids. Uh, all like ages like eight to 12, um, going through the training to become space Marines, basically. And um, 
I don't want to give away the ending for those who haven't read it because it's an incredible, incredible book. Um, one of the greatest works of science fiction in the history of science fiction. So read it. And uh, Ender in in the book, Ender learns how to uh, stand alone. He learns um, how to be a leader. He learns how to not do what all the other teenagers are doing, um, and he learns how to make very difficult decisions. Sounds good. It's I just wrote it down. It's on the list. I'm yeah. definitely gonna have to read that. Um, yeah, despite you know I've, I've not read a lot of fiction recently. Um, Actually, I think the last fiction thing was your first book, the first book. Yes. Actually, that was the last. <laughs> I think that was the last fiction book I read. Um, so yeah, I'll have to give that a sh- uh, give that a shout. So, Corey, where can people find you online? If you're a fine artist and you want to connect with me, uh, head over to theabundantartist.com. Uh, if you're not a fine artist and you still want to connect with me for some weird reason. Uh, uh, you can find like my clearinghouse for everything is coreyhuff.com, C-O-R-Y, uh, or just connect with me on Facebook. I'm way too active on social media, uh, and I w- welcome all comers. So, uh, facebook.com slash Huff. Perfect. Well, Corey, th- thanks so much for the conversation coming on the show and, uh, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me.